these last Sundays, it's been coming at us, the Great Commission. And as we have that coming at us, I would remind you as we began this look at the Great Commission, we thought of the Great Commission as that great commandment and certainly make disciples. It's an imperative. And in that process that was so important, it's given to us by Jesus of going, baptizing, and teaching. And it has a purpose of, yes, that the nations would become glad to worship the Lord all together. And then we had last week that great story of the Great Commission in that there is a beauty that the gospel is that great story that goes to the nations. And there is a story of how that gospel has impacted the whole globe, all the nations. There is this wonderful work that's going on right now to all the different lands. And then to have a sense that he has been among the nations. His promise, I will be with you always, into the end of the age. His presence is real. This morning, it's more in a sense of taking this passage and seeking to apply it to us. How is it that Cornerstone can remain faithful in the next 45 years? As a church, the urgent challenge for Cornerstone. Let's bow just for a brief word of prayer. Oh Lord, I do bow in your presence and we together bow in your presence, not because this is the way sermons are done that we pray first, but Lord, is we need to hear your word. We need to hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that would enter into our hearts and minds and our daily lives and our great purpose as a church. Keep cornerstone, Lord, faithful to keep and obey the great commission that Jesus has given to us. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Certainly, turn in your Bibles and let me read afresh how after the resurrection and the days of receiving these instructions from the risen Lord, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had pointed them to. And then we read, when they saw him, Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 16, and then we come to verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And certainly as you look at this great commission, the very context and atmosphere of the great commission is of worship in a sense all that has been given by this gospel of Matthew brings us to this point of this worship when they saw him they worshiped him God is forming together here a community of truth and love 
there is a reality to this that they were worshipers. All true disciples. If you're a disciple, you're a worshiper. We are to be those who worship the Lord. As you look at this passage, certainly there's something important here when we think, what are we to worship or whom are we to worship? These are Jews. And as a nation, they have had written upon them as a nation those Ten Commandments. It's part of their very identity as Jews. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, that commandment says, You shall not bow down to them, idols, false gods, or worship them, for I, Yahweh, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Yet they came and recognized him and worshiped him. There was something of the reality that the Lord was God, the Lord Jesus himself. And so in the early church, the very worship of the Lord is the very foundation of the Great Commission. It's something that was very much the atmosphere of it all. It is necessary, as oxygen is for us, to be worshiping the Lord who gave us the Great Commission. Cornerstone. We're going to be a faithful church for the next 45 years. We must be a worshiping church to be faithful always. Dr. John Piper of Desiring God has given us these words very, very uh, faithfully in almost everything he does and says. He has this emphasis, and the, some of this is there in the back of your bulletin from John Piper. And uh, he has this word, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. Missions is a temporary necessity. And then coming down into what Piper says a little later, he says, missions begins and ends in worship. When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the most remote peoples on earth. And I long for that day to come. So our prayer this morning is that as a church that God would strike our hearts as the body here at Cornerstone with that worship of the Lord in such a way that we want other nations, other tribes, other languages, other peoples to worship the true and living God. That's something that we need constantly to be striking our hearts, that we would love the Lord in such a way that we would be worshipers. So I begin with something I think, though, is very important in this. And that is that worshipers also have doubts. If you notice the passage, it says they worshipped him, but some doubted. And worshipers are with doubts. Some doubted, hesitated. We might be shocked with that. Uh, but here in this grandiose moment, 
of giving the great commission that was going to impact the whole of the earth. Some doubted this great moment when he's giving this commission to proclaim to the whole of creation, Jesus saves. Some doubted. And I think it's important for us to realize that life among those who are Christians is, as I would often use the expression, messy. We have hesitations and doubts. Think back who they were. They were those who had seen this one Lord Jesus Christ crucified, rejected, spit upon, mocked, flogged. They didn't know what the future was, but even just thinking about the future might have been something to cause them hesitation. We know something of what took place in the future. Those that were in the book of Acts are spelled out to us clearly that they suffered grand tribulations, tremendous persecution, moral failures. We would might even think of what is part of the history of missions that we know about in churches with divisions, sadness of those who were leaders and who failed morally and caused great damage. The damage is real. There are doubts at times that come. Yet in the midst of all of these doubts and obstacles, God's word does grow. It expands to other places. There is a beauty to this. When we read in Acts chapter 8, after the church had been scattered abroad, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And then we read again, so there was great joy in that city as Philip proclaimed Christ to those people there. Even in the midst of all these difficulties, God blesses. So, cornerstone. What do we want? And uh, what is our great, you know, what is our goal? There's something much more than nice churches with nice people, nice buildings, and nice food to form a nice club. That's not what we're all about. In fact, that can almost become an idol. Everything is just like we want it. It's all nice. Our children are nice. Our grandchildren are nice. The building is even nicer. And it all just is nice, nice, nice. Can that be an idol? Is there yet something that God would make us be such worshipers that as we find in the book of Jude, he pleads, be merciful to those who doubt, O Lord. We are to be those who seek first the kingdom of his righteousness, to seek his kingdom first, and the Lord will add to us all those things that we have need of. But it's not that our great goal would be to have everything nice, nice, and nice. Even the good things can become an idol. Secondly, I think it's important for us to see that worshipers are to be with boldness. There is a beauty to that as we read how God has promised that he will bless the furtherance of the gospel going to all the nations, and he has promised, yes, glorious blessing to all the peoples 
of all the languages and the nations and tribes in a wonderful way. There is a holy oldness to those who are faithful to carry forth the gospel to others. Sometimes I think there's almost a, an element when we think we are, as a community, a community of truth and love. And there's almost a feeling that we should be anything but bold, almost like we should be kind of like wimpy, without any real courage and, and fire in our bones for the truth. There's a tendency there. Just relax and be nice people. I think it's good for us to have a reality check. It's good for me to have a reality check. The one who sends us is the one who has all power, all authority in heaven and earth. All authority. Do we have the boldness of all authority that we stand for the truth? Certainly the Old Testament has great examples of people who were sent by the Lord and they stood boldly. Gideon, Judges chapter 6. Kind of a, almost a fascinating study in this uh, amazing judge. Uh, here he is uh, suddenly, you know, kind of out of his league, we might say. He's told to, you know, bring down the altar of Baal and take down the Asherah pole and all that's involved with that. And what does he say? Who, me? I'm of the least important tribe. I'm, I'm of the youngest in my family. Who, me? How can that be? And of course, the reality is the Lord says, but I will be with you. Verse 16 of Judges 6. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? And so the, the angel of the Lord, the Malak Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord, the one who is sent by the Lord speaking to him, sounds in many ways like the Lord Jesus. Fear not, I am with you. I will be with you. You can be bold. And then it's sometimes uh, we need to realize it's time to be bold. I think uh, it's almost like the Lord saying, Gideon, that little God Baal needs to go. And I, I think there's a vacillating how to be standing for the truth at different times. It was Augustine, while he was still in his bondage to sin and while he was still in the bondage to his philosophical world that he lived in, and Augustine came to the place of his prayer that we sometimes translate it with real fancy words, but I think the translation really should be that Augustine prayed, grant me purity and sexual self-control, but not yet. He was vacillating. He was still hanging on to his sin, but he wants to be free, but there was not that boldness to stand for the truth. So we need to realize, as Jesus declared, no one can serve two masters. There is a need to be those who will even burn bridges if need be and take our stand for the truth, even if we do stand alone. Yes, 
I do think, though, sometimes people look at this passage of, of Gideon and say, well, look, he did it at night. He brought down the altar at night. He chopped down the Asherah pole at night. But God didn't say he couldn't have wisdom with his boldness. And I think there was some wisdom in doing it at night. Because what happened in the morning? There was the mob that gathered at his father's home. And they wanted to lynch him right away. He must have had some kind of a good, loving relationship with his father. Because it was his dad who stood boldly against that gang that wanted to lynch Gideon. He threw it in their faces. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save your God? If Baal really is a God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Now, I love what happened there. If you know, he cut down the Asherah pole, and cutting it down, it had a great falling, but he takes the wood and uses that to build the fire for the offering unto the Lord. Almost, uh, you know, I think there was some real irony in that. And uh, the Lord giving him that boldness. Truth is paramount. And we must stand for the truth even if we stand alone. And we have stood for the truth. As a church, we've stood for the truth. And may God give us grace to stand for the truth no matter what. I remember at a very low time for us as a family, as missionaries in Costa Rica, and uh, one of the professors, Cornelius Van Til from Westminster Seminary, sent me a, a brief word of encouragement, and at the end he put, stand firm, and he had these words from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So this morning, we're bringing these things down to where we can have some application. So worshipers with action is our third point here that's so important. Worshipers with action. It's not the action of Peter cutting off someone's ear with a sword, but it's Peter's action with the word of God that changes people. So as we look back in our own history, as Reformed Baptists, as we sometimes call ourselves, there's William Carey. We're part of that great heritage, the one who's known as the father of modern missions, William Carey. He was certainly not the pioneer of missions, not the first. So who was William Carey? And uh, he was a worshiper of the true and living God who wanted the nations, as he studied, he wanted those nations all to worship that true and living God with him. He had a burden to obey the Lord. He preached that sermon to these other pastors and some others. It was not a large, great gathering. But he preached this message from Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. The two points were, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. We read those words, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out your tent curtains wide, do not hold back 
Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Those two points brought down to them attempt great things for God now. Expect great things from God now. Had an amazing effect upon those who were gathered there. He was sent upon that in 1793 to India as a missionary. There was opposition great in India just to live there with all that was involved. But God used him mightily. Who was William Carey? Hmm. We had uh, the, our ladies of Cornerstone some years back read through a wonderful biography by Vishal Mangawadi, this Indian statesman, telling something of the biography story of, of William Carey. He begins that little biography of Carey with an imaginary gathering of all the university uh, scholars in a competition. And uh, the contestants of this final All India Universities competition starts with the question, who was William Carey? And all the hands went up. And they started right away, missionary. Others then said he was a botanist, and they were correct. He introduced the very principles of botany to that land because God is the creator of all the plants. All is under his purpose. God is God over all things. Another said industrialists. They were correct. He brought printing and, and the steam engine to India. Others said he was an economist. He opposed the usury that was going on and banks were introduced, pushed forward to do these things agriculturalists planting all kinds of, of uh, plants and trees even so they could have paper for the books they were going to publish using all these different means. Yes, even a medical pioneer in that he stood up and, and did research with others to help those who were lepers. An astronomer enjoying God's wonderful universe in that astrology was what was being taught that the stars and the planets is what controlled people's lives in India. And he said, no, here is the truth about the stars and the planets. It's God alone who has control of things. And of course, we know something of William Carey as a translator. Amazing story. This plodding Calvinist translated the entire Bible, yes, with the help of Indian nationals into Bengali, Oriya, Hindi, Marathi, Assamese, not even sure how to pronounce all these amazing languages, Sanskrit. The whole Bible translated into these. There were other almost entire portions of the New Testament and some of the Old into five other major languages and the 23 other languages they translated portions or books alone. Amazing. Carey was a simple man determined to use every means, all the methods available to tell the wonderful story of Jesus to those who weren't hearing. There was a 
a determination that he worked hard to overcome these obstacles. The use of means, of different methods, was that which he gave himself to. I ask, do we have even more means in our day than a William Carey in his day? What are we going to do? Carey's question at the end of his sermon was, are we going to do nothing again this year? And that was something that sunk down into the hearts of the people as they had listened to that sermon. I do believe we have so many opportunities with gospel literature as a church into different languages that we can send out to others. Study groups for prayer to form together to pray with earnestness for missionary endeavors. There's opportunities for those who can go into other cultures where the gospel is forbidden to be and they can teach English as a second language and and yes see people come to Christ real people coming to know Christ because they want to learn English and so they hear the gospel and they come to have faith in Christ we have our friend Gabriel that's now giving himself just to teach English in another culture so he can witness and tell others of Christ what are the methods that God has given us radio broadcast podcasts that could be done telling our testimonies to send them out to others people are wanting to hear things in English we have opportunities yes amazing ways even in our own land we think of the difficulties of taking the gospel to the world of Islam and yet the people of Islam have come to our own nation And there are, yes, hundreds of thousands of them in different cities and places where the gospel can be taken to them freely. Our own LDS community, how can we take the gospel to them? Those who are without the gospel, we need to have a burden to see that gospel go forth. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So we ask the question, here am I, Lord, send me. How can we be involved? How can we see our sons and daughters sent forth? How can we see our grandchildren sent forth, prepared to take the gospel to other languages and peoples? Is there a place for training of those who would go forth? Is there a place for us to be serious about holding the rope while others go down into the darkness and really caring for those who are sent forth? Finally, as we would say to William Carey's question at the end of his sermon, are we not going to do anything again this year? I believe Cornerstone is doing many things. And how we rejoice for the privilege we have to work together to see the gospel go to the nations. But may God give us grace to do more and more. And as we do it, that we would be worshipers with enjoyment. Is there a greater joy than experience the the good news of the gospel? Is there a greater joy than telling others the good news of the gospel? 
it is good news and it is enjoyable to tell others. I've listed just three very brief illustrations of those who had great joy in telling the gospel. We have mentioned over these past three weeks those five young men who were in the very prime of their life, who gave their lives in Ecuador. There was something very special about these young men. They were well-educated. They had great potential. They were young men that were recognized as outstanding. There is something that I have had the privilege of watching over and over again. Homemade movie of the first time they made contact with what we knew then as the Aka, Aka Indians. And there was something there with their very understanding of things, how they, when they first received back from them, the first gift from them, in such an unusual way, they had let down this line from their airplane so they could give gifts to these people. And they finally sent to them a monkey's paw. Doesn't seem like anything that you'd really want. But when they got back and saw that they had had this friendly encounter with these people that they were seeking to give the gospel to, who had killed everyone else that came in contact with this tribe. These young men, and you watch it on this homemade movie, are literally jumping up and down. It reminded me of a recent wedding at the end, the music that was playing, and it seemed like all the young people were out there just jumping up and down. There was something of this joy these young men had, though. They could not hold back. They were just full of joy. And there's something amazing there when you think of Nate Saint, the pilot, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, Roger Yodarian, and Jim Elliott. Five young men, 1956. And yes, they were killed by the same tribe that they were trying to give the gospel to. But God has brought the gospel to those people with Christ's love. Secondly, I'd like to just point to another strange missionary by the name of Boniface. He's back even further than I think, at least that I can remember, he's back to the 8th century. That's further back than any of us. He was a missionary to Germany, the Saxons, and he lived among them and he loved them and there was something that he had for them that was very special and he, yes, enjoyed being with them and had love, but what they had was a Christianity that had come from paganism. They had their altars to their God Thor and also to Jesus Christ. What they had learned was here are German gods and here's also Jesus as another one. And Jesus is fine as long as he doesn't demand too much. And Boniface had this thing that struck him like thunder, an idea to show the powerlessness of four, their God. They had there again this, uh, what we might say, their great symbol of their God, Thor, was this immense, huge oak tree. And some of you maybe know the story. It was 
what struck him was he would go and with his great axe, he would chop down that great oak tree. And I love it. <laughs> he takes the wood from that and builds a building to worship the Lord in. Now, how in the world would they ever let him do this? It was because he had, yes, lived among them, loved them. They had come to love him. And they had expected somehow or another Thor would strike him down. But he took the wood and built the church building so they could come and worship. And they did come and worship the Lord. There needs to be sometimes not only a boldness, but that love of Christ, that enjoyment to live with and care for and know and hear the needs of those who need the Lord. There is a holy boldness to do that. As we live in our day right now, there is this sense in which I think much of our world is worshiping idols of the heart, money, sex, and power. These idols of the heart that have different forms, but they're very real in our culture, aren't they? We struggle with them, all of us. I thank the Lord for those who are ministers of the gospel, who teach very well, those places where we have wonderful things happening in our churches. We have conference speakers, we have pastors, we have many, and yet how many are really those who are going beyond what I call the four walls, taking the gospel to the nations, to the tribes, to the other languages, to the people beyond our own comfort place, our own nice places? How do we make disciples of those who are outside the church in our day? And I do believe the nations are coming to the cities. We looked through and saw that 60% now of the world's 8 billion people live in cities. The great cities of this world have the nations and the tribes and the languages of the world in them. There are 37 million people that live in Tokyo, Japan, 32 million in Delhi, India, 29 million in Shanghai, China, and you can go on with city after city after city, a long list, and that's why we can say 60% of the world's population have come into cities with all their backgrounds. They're full of idols, especially the idols of the heart, money, sex, and power. New York City boasts of those idols. It's like the center of the world of those things. The skeptics, the atheists, those who are set against the scriptures, how do we get the gospel to those people? In our day, Timothy Keller, who pastored a small congregation before, and then he went became a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and uh, a man who, uh, yes, uh, set himself as he was sent to New York City in 1989, sent with his wife and three sons, young sons, to go and confront those idols of the heart in Manhattan, the center of it. It's really an amazing story. He went there to preach the gospel boldly with the love of Christ in that pagan city his defense of the faith followed the historic stance of Cornelius Van Til the word of God alone is our authority in all areas of life 
He stood firmly with that. But Keller also attacked, in that style of Van Til, those gods of the heart. And there was something there that as he would speak to that emptiness of those gods and show the powerlessness of those gods, he, yes, wrote some important books. One called The Reason for God, another The Meaning or The Making of God. And, and uh, speaking to the atheists, the skeptics, not with a clenched fist, but really with a bowed head, bringing that love of Christ to them. Against, yes, he spoke against same-sex marriage. Yes, there in New York City, he spoke against homosexuality and took a stand against it. And yes, in a very real way, he did that, seeking to show the beauty and enjoyment of Christ as a savior of sinners as we all are. He wrote, even as he had the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer with not very long to live, he wrote his book, The Hope in Times of Fear, in his book on forgiveness, books that were so important, I believe, in a culture that we live in that is an unforgiving culture, a culture that's really without hope. And here is the gospel of joy coming to people. I ask the question, we will be faithful? Or should I say, we will be faithful if we worship the Lord Jesus Christ with joy because of what he's done for us. Timothy Keller was taken to glory on May the 19th, 2023. There are hundreds of new churches in the cities across the world through his city-to-city -city ministry. In fact, 838 churches in 140 cities across the globe. They sought to chop down the Asherah poles, the gods of the heart. But how can we make that message known without it being a clenched fist? That church in Manhattan, they did something that was very important. They cared for the HIV victims, those who were suffering with that. They went to the hospitals. They went to the different places and cared for those people. They sought to care for the survivors of 9-11 in New York. They cared for the unwed mothers. They organized so they would have an outreach to those communities. They were caring for the needy and the destitute, the homeless, those who were prisoners, foreigners, those who didn't seem to fit in. Could it be that God has given us something of a pattern of how we can reach out as cornerstone and be faithful? We are called not just to preach, but to sing praises before the nations. We're not just to tell them the gospel, but there's to be something of celebrating that good news together as a congregation, what great things God has done for us and make it known the Great Commission we've been given is really a call to compassion, to venture all we have to reach the peoples that God has to call to himself. Our prayer is that the Lord would touch our hearts, 
with this great commission and speak afresh to us. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Lord, that is our prayer, that you would touch our hearts, strike our hearts, so that we would be joyfully worshiping you as the true and living God, as we have constantly prayed, oh, Lord, touch us as a congregation. You've called us to take your light to the nations, to all the different tribes, to the languages of the world. And we pray, oh Lord, you would so strike our hearts that we would love you and worship you and obey you. And we ask, Lord, for your blessing, even as we would sing this hymn, touch us, oh Lord, in such a way that we will faithfully obey the Great Commission. And the next 45 years will be glorious years of telling forth the gospel to all the peoples around us here in Mesa and even to the ends of the earth. May Jesus Christ be praised, in whose name we pray.